Up next on Episode 77 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss how to accidentally destroy your software business, Google's new DNS and page speed rankings, and why the most productive employees aren't paid 10 times as much. From IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Okay, well, let's start the podcast. I'm a man to get this thing going. Okay. Hey, Joel. So are we started? Hey, Jeff. What's up? Okay, good. We've started the podcast. So I want to start this podcast by saying that I think we should just cancel Stack Overflow. I think it's, it, it's it has over. run its course. The, I feel it, that way, it's too. It's done everything it's needed to do, and we should just end it you know, gracefully. Like with a season finale, you know the podcast or the um, no the whole the whole websites the whole everything yeah we'll keep super user of course <laughs> and meta uh, what yeah. what made you uh, what made you want to cancel the uh, you want to do the Seinfeld leave while we're on 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 top no or is it just I just the thought sheer it would be ungratefulness well you know what you know what always intrigued me was the idea that you have these action movies where. You know, the hero never dies. You know, there's always stuff happening, and the hero miraculously makes it through. Yeah. And you never really saw a movie where, right in the middle, the hero just makes makes a mistake and, you know, slips off the crevasse and falls into the uh Oh, the abyss geez, any European movie, any, like, not American movie that happens. They're like, yeah, and then he died. It was really sad. You see I guess the equivalent, well, actually, no, I guess that does happen. The equivalent, and this is something you were actually really worried about us doing, was something happens to your database that's like irrevocable, like you lose all your data through some really dumb mistake. Right when we were launching Stack Overflow, that happened to that uh, website Magnolia, which was sort of like a delicious clone, like a bookmarking s- service. And, yeah. Um, and that was all she wrote for that website. So I guess it does kind of happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's why I was afraid of that because that and there might have been a couple of others. I'm just making espresso. I got to close the door here. There might have been a couple other examples uh, of what was the other one besides Magnolia? You know, where a company basically just was like, "Oops, we lost everything. Goodbye." Well, I guess one one line of thought there is: what crippling mistakes could you make that would actually ruin you? <laughs> you know, as as a website, as as a business, as an initiative, and I, I think maybe one of them is the whole "don't be evil." I guess eventually you just start turning off your users by doing things that aren't really in the spirit of the thing you set out to do. But like the hyphen not, site, right? The hyphen site is kind of ruining themselves, but they uh, don't a care. Long term, you know, a long term thing where they're like they're they're just becoming less and less valuable to people. I think. You know, it's well, sort of they're eroding their, their value. Just like sort of Apple is eroding a little bit of trust in the developer community by having uh, the App Store policies. You know, that's like... That's, so it's that's just like, a, a general erosion. It's right. Not, I mean, it's like one force, but it's not like I lost everything and I had to close the next day, death penalty to my company kind of situation. That would require either data loss or the other thing that could happen to us, and actually something we're, we're doing now, uh, since we have some money at the end of the year, is we're actually getting a second database server because mm-hmm. yeah. one, one of the things I thought could happen that would be really difficult for us to recover from is something really bad happened to our database server because we're doing enough database work now and we have large enough databases that our contingency plan was for the web tier to host the database. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those machines have 8 gigabytes of memory, which is you know not chopped liver, but we we have enough databases and enough traffic now that... I don't know that that would work, so I started to get a little bit worried. Right. So, uh, short of losing your data, which we have backup plans and stuff like that, I guess losing some a critical piece of hardware that is difficult to replace would take you like you know days to replace. Right. Could kind of crippling. Yeah, you'd be down for a few days, but that wouldn't quite kill us dead. It would. It would look really bad. Yeah, we don't want that. We don't want that to happen. <laughs> I mean, even Twitter was never down for days. We have a uh, yeah. It's it's good to have. Um, you know, we always had a policy of always having at least one 
um, piece of hardware on the rack already racked up and even turned on, uh, not necessarily the operating system installed, but you know, like the, the system is known to work, um, that had the maximum specifications of any other machine on the rack, whatever, whatever else we're using. So no matter what machine went down, there would be another machine that would be at least that capable to replace it if we could restore the data and stuff like that. Yes, that's exactly the philosophy. It's like I, I felt like we were getting out of the range of having that kind of backup, uh, equivalent, yeah. yeah, an equivalent machine that could sort of in a p- pinch hit uh, yeah. for the database server. And we actually we changed our, our strategy at Fog Creek for what to do if the whole data center goes down. Um, the old strategy used to be we had two data centers, and each of them was at less than 50% capacity. And everything was mirrored. We had a data center in Los Angeles, data center in New York. Everything was mirrored. Um, and uh, it was kind of working, but the mirroring was using so much bandwidth that eventually it was getting to be like 24 hours worth of mirroring work to do in, in every 24-hour period. Um, so that wasn't really sustainable. And it was kind of hard to manage two data centers. And every once in a while, somebody had to fly to Los Angeles. And um, so what we did was uh, uh, eventually we decommissioned Los Angeles and made a warm backup using those Amazon, um, is it? Oh, yeah, the, the Amazon S- EC instances. EC, right, right, where they can give you a machine real fast, an image real fast. And we sort of set it up so that we knew that we could move various services onto those and get those up quickly as our backup. And I think we do, um, I, now, now I'm probably, um, uh, uh, now I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I think I think we have done some <laughs> some some sample failovers and we're going to start doing more and more sample failovers onto the failover oh, system. Wow. When we'll do you just, do those? I, I think that the plan is to take like 10 people every day or something and just randomly um, switch them off and, and fail them over onto Amazon and see if it works. Wow. Something like that. Um, just to just to be constantly making sure that we have actually done a failover, you know, and, and known what's what's involved in it. Oh yeah, no, that totally makes sense. One thing and which is kind of kind of interesting is everybody always talks about like how reliable is your service? Is it up ninety nine point nine percent of the time? Ninety nine point nine? How many nines do you have? And like how much uh, downtime do you have every year? And in in most cases, except for tw- Twitter, is sort of an extreme case because they're just down all the time. But in most cases, the the biggest factor is not how often you go down, but how fast you can get up again after you go down. Because mm-hmm. the difference between I can get the service back up in a minute and I can get the service back up in an hour, is like if you can get the service back up in a minute, you can go down 60 times a year versus I can get the service back up in an hour, you can only go down one time a year and have this still the same you know, number of amount of outage per year. I, I think that's a great point. So like um, fast recovery is almost, it's, it's, it's probably more important to work on being able to recover fast than on not going down often. Well, I have a related point I want to come back to there, but this is also relevant because when we did the, we pulled the CPUs out of the current database server, it was also an opportunity to upgrade a little bit on our current database server, so it's 25% faster. Yeah. Um, but we obviously had to take all the sites down to do that, and some people were sort of questioning, well, should you have any downtime? Shouldn't you have this sort of complex you know, backup strategy in place? And I think for our service, I mean, maybe I would have a different opinion about careers once we get really really chugging on that but i mean to be down like two to it wasn't even two hours to be down two hours every six months is that really a problem for, nah. for a service like what we run uh-uh. i mean i i just don't think the complexity of sort of this complex failover is really worth it for us i mean we don't want to be down for days but being down for a few hours every even every two or three months is not i don't think a huge deal particularly remember we schedule it to, to like the historic low peak of traffic which for sure. us is saturday at about 5 p.m. Yeah, PSD. nobody's programming it Saturday. What's, yeah. Who are these people? Yeah, take a break. Take, take, a, a, break. take a chill pill. This is, I mean, it's, it's totally standard. Even the services that you think of as being, you know, quote-unquote high availability, uh, if, if you look closely, you may notice that they're going down every Tuesday night at 1 a.m. for 45 minutes. You know, like bank, your bank. Yeah, like even I've been on like eBay and things like that that actually had outage times like while I was using them. Right. Now, granted, I have weird hours. Now, some of those things like eBay and Amazon, they they look at that and they think, gee, if I'm down for 45 minutes, I'm going to lose 45 minutes worth of sales. That's $1.6 billion. So $1.6 billion is how much we should be willing to spend to not be down for 45 minutes. Yes. Well, that's the correct calculation, isn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. exactly. And I think for what you guys do, you're not selling like widgets, right? From your website. I mean, you're selling a service. So right. it's just a service agreement with you and your customers. Yeah. We have the same thing. We know when to go down. I think it's usually Sunday morning for us when there's very little usage, we give people plenty of warning. 
and you know, we go down for half an hour and it's just no big deal to, 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 to change something over. And when you think about like, what would it take to actually keep SQL server up and running while you migrated hardware? Uh, I don't even think that there's a great answer to that. I mean, the only way to keep SQL Server actually up when one piece of hardware comes down is to use their clustering feature. But if you look closely, read between the lines about SQL Server clustering, where that, that would let you get like two machines that you know, are both responding to requests, and one of them can go down and the other one can take up all the load. But they have very, very strict requirements. Like Both machines have to be identical, I think. They have to be... I don't know if they have to be the same speed, but you can't really bring down one machine in a cluster, upgrade it, and then rejoin it to the cluster. Like, they have to be running the exact same version of SQL Server 6.5 or whatever the last version in the clustering. Uh, maybe I exaggerate. And uh, um, there's, there's just kind of all kinds of reasons why, why clustering doesn't even let you. You're still going to have to bring down a cluster if you want to upgrade the operating system. or So... Well, there's a certain amount of complexity you have to absorb, and it's not always justified. Now, getting back to what we were originally talking about, we were talking about ways you can fail catastrophically as a as a website, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah. what would what would kill you as yeah, a business? Yeah, why are we thinking about it? Is it Halloween or is this? I mean, what's the no? I just occasionally I like to think theory. about contingency plans. Like, what's the sure. worst thing that could happen? Like, sort of like a meteor, like extinction of the human race. Like, realistic worst things that could happen. And um, top of the list is losing data, losing a server, particularly the database server. Um, but I think you pointed to a good one, which is a much more subtle and pernicious problem, which is erosion of, of user trust. satisfaction and trust with your site. Yeah. Now, I saw a great article, and I'll link it in the show notes. It was about MySpace and how MySpace has massive erosion, <laughs> where, I mean... Facebook is kind of eating their lunch, and all the other social networks are kind of eating their lunch. And yeah. you know, MySpace used to be this big dog, and I don't think honestly they see it. Like I was reading the article, and, t- and you know, they're talking about the executives, and I guess two two of the main guys already cashed out. Like they're not even involved with the site, the creators of the site. Oh and yeah, of course, I'm Rupert, sure. Rupert Murdoch bought their site or whatever, and it was supposed to be this grand pillar of of social community, and it's turning into. I I, I don't think they can fix this problem that they have. I think they're essentially hosed. Like I don't. See, anyway, MySpace can fix this decline. I mean, do you? Mm. Uh, well, uh, yes and no. I, I don't really know enough about MySpace. I mean, but it's, it's, what does MySpace really offer that the other sort of social networking sites don't? I mean, I, I, I don't. It, it's kind of like a winner takes all game. It's like nobody else is really doing online auctions other than eBay, is there? Uh, no, except for Amazon, which has come up with it in a sort of a subtle way. It's not really I mean, this is the scary thing for me like about like Facebook is that it, it's kind of a winner takes all game. Yeah, and and I've used search that way too. Like I, people say, there's no friction to changing search engines, so it doesn't really matter if Google is ultra dominant. But I, I I don't know. I just don't I don't think you can really be competitive. I think that it's kind of at best maybe a Coke Pepsi market, and realistically, a nat, like a natural monopoly. Um, well, okay. So here's what, what what I think about MySpace. What happened to MySpace? I think they, they didn't notice this. Is that they were a generational thing. Like, they just thought that they were a youth-oriented site. But what they actually were is a you know, youth born between 1982 and 1989 site, whatever that may be. So at some, ex- you know, at, at some point, uh, it, it became, like, uncool. It was, like, what little kids were doing or what older kids were doing. Or it doesn't even matter, but it wasn't your generation. It wasn't your thing. And Facebook became Facebook by starting out as a college site became incredibly cool to high school kids who were like, "Ooh, I can go to this college site." And I think Facebook might. Who knows? At some point, Facebook has obviously switched to, um, you know, just being a site for everybody, uh, and it became a very different thing than when it was a college site. Which actually, well, I think, I think it's, well, it's, it. it's Metcalf's law, isn't it? I mean, the the value of the network is proportional to the square of the number of sort of nodes on it. Sure, but there's certain uh, things you used to be able to do on Facebook you can't even do anymore, and they've left a gigantic opening now for somebody to make what Facebook was and have it be very popular among college kids. Like, you well, used to be able to look article, up people that were majoring in your major in your school, and you can't do that anymore. And, well, and it, in the article, they cite two specific things that they, they, they think contributed mightily to the decline of, of MySpace. Uh, One is Facebook and other social networking sites uh, started this trend of sort of spamming your email book with your permission. Um, and Bebo and Facebook started doing this and had a huge spike in membership, but MySpace wasn't doing this This sort of give us your email address and let us you know, tell all your friends about how great MySpace is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's number one. And then number two, uh, specific to Facebook, was all the ajax stuff where they were doing um, 
async updates and sort of trying to improve performance of the site. Um, oh. And MySpace was resisting that from from an ad sales perspective because they wanted like maximum page views. Because when you do stuff via Ajax, you're refreshing part of the page in situ. You know, oh, you're, yeah, you're just refreshing that section. You're not refreshing the whole page, so the ad the ad doesn't change, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all this resistance, like this old guard resistance to, you know, let's create the maximum number of page views. So anything that would, you know, help the user experience but hurt page views, we're not going to do. That sounds like a typical old media way of doing things. Yeah, so that was, I guess, the tie-in with uh, Rupert Murdoch and sort of the the pushing of of ads, uh, you know, whatever delivers the most ad volume. I think I remember, I mean, when I first looked at MySpace, it had snuck up on a younger group of people than me. It's very popular with, like, bands and stuff like that. Every band wanted to have a MySpace site. And it was just a popular place for high school kids, which made it, you know, kind of unpopular for older and younger kids. And I think they're kind of rallying, in theory, rallying around their strengths. I'm not convinced right. that they understand what those strengths are, but around Music. the whole band angle yeah. and you know the younger kids and stuff like that. Sure. But it, this erosion is a serious thing because, from my perspective, I mean, MySpace is kind of like America Online to me now. It's just it's 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 becoming a part of history, and I don't know how they could really stop that pendulum from swinging. Yeah, I hope that happens to Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if that happens to Twitter. So I want to come back to something that you brought up, which was about um, how quickly you can respond to bad things happening in your data center being okay. a more important factor than having then complex contingency yeah, plans. You can have bad things happen as long as you recover from them quickly. Well, this is one of the, the big things that I keep coming back to in software development. And I actually wrote a blog entry about um, how – because when we shipped careers and everything I've shipped, it's, I've always been unhappy with because – there's all these deadlines, and you have to sort of push it out, and you never really get it exactly the way you want it. Um, and yeah. careers was definitely like that because I felt careers, we had to push it out. We had a deadline with uh, dev days. Right. Um, and I wasn't really happy with where it was, but we didn't really have a choice because we wanted to sync up with, with the audience at dev days. We wanted to give them some, you know, a launch there with that audience. Right. Um, but I think in the end, it's like you have to let go of that because it's not how fast can you or how good can you make V1. It's how fast can you make v1 into the awesome v1.1 v1.2 1.3 it's about how fast you can recover um it's how fast you can iterate the 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 speed of iteration is more important than shipping a perfect v1 the derivative so to speak rather than yeah so it's the same basic principle and and i think that's what we try to optimize for is you know being really responsive on the stack overflow team figuring out what the hot spots are and and Mm -hmm. and the, and the, the weird thing to me about that is you can't really figure that out until you ship Right. Because you have all these ideas about how things are going to work that just end up not being true. Not being I mean, I don't close. care how much research you do, how many users you talk to. It's just you can't really get a handle on what's going to happen in the real world until you just push it out and see what happens. Yeah. And, of course, I mean, the, biggest, the biggest risk there, just theoretically, is that you push out something early that's either awful or is utterly and completely different than what you eventually become. And in the meantime, everybody thinks that what you had – you know, is that is that old? Is that initial thing? And we actually did make that mistake a little bit because the whole public CVs we didn't have initially, so yeah. we weren't able to sort of create the initial, the correct initial impression of what we, the product, which is that okay, right, right, right. If we had figured that out right the first time, we would have started with public CVs and not even talked about employer search to say this is just a public CV th- service. And then the next stage is, you know, later we'll add on those other things. Right. So th- there is definitely that because you have this big, you know, hullabahoo when you launch something, and you can't really recreate that. Right. You know, it's like, hey, we're launching V1.1. <laughs> you know, it's like the V1.1 launch party. It's not but nearly the, uh, as exciting as the, yeah. the V2 or V1 but launch party. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't really worry about that too much. The number of people that ultimately are using, even the case of Stack Overflow, I mean, think how many people must be new to Stack Overflow right now. Like, just based on the growth that we've had in terms of visitors to Stack Overflow, and we're going to have the same thing with careers, 90% of the people that are using it, you know, joined up within the last couple of months. Wow. Absolutely. Sorry, things are crashing in my office. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's certainly yeah. still people that are discovering me, you, you know, Stack Overflow, and I mean, that's just the natural right. order of things. There's no real upper bound on growth. I think right now we have uh, a certain number of people that are actually using Stack Overflow and not knowing that that's what it is. 
like because they they do Google, they find a search result, they read it, they haven't even noticed. They're just like, oh, it's one of those forms. Oh, look, there's my answer. Okay, I can move on with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know maybe the fifth time they start to say, oh, you know, I'm getting really good answers from the site with a big with a big fonts. I like the font with a site with a big font. What is that site with the big fonts? And then they'll, you know, look at the top and they'll see the name of it and they'll be like, oh, okay, cool. And you know, did maybe you see later. that Google is starting to talk about prioritizing search results based on speed of page load? Wow. Yeah, that's a big deal because that would heavily favor us. Yay. Because we spend a lot of time optimizing for that. Cool. And that is actually one of my beefs was that when you go back to the PHPB world and just trying to find stuff online, it's, it is irritating that half the time when you click something, it takes, you know, 1.5 seconds to even load enough to tell if this is the right thing. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's kind of infuriating, actually, right? It's like, not only does the result suck, but I have to wait to figure out that it sucks. So it's yeah. like doubly sucky. So it, it's like, if you're going to suck, this, I guess this gets back to speed of iteration. <laughs> you're gonna if you're going to suck, suck really fast <laughs> so that I can come in and say, okay, this sucks. This isn't what I wanted. And then leave. And then I actually have a better feeling about the sucky site because, hey, you sucked, but you sucked really fast. <laughs> In a way that didn't take up much of my time, so I will forgive you a little bit. Versus the site that you know I got to load these ten banner ads, and then I got to load this column, and then I got to load this div that like wants you to sign up on top of it, and I have to dismiss that. And yeah, the whole thing is just a, such a bad experience. So I I'm really intrigued by this, and they actually have in the webmaster tools they have a, a like a labs function that'll sort of tell you your page load time. I don't know if it's actually working right now because when I checked it for stack overflow mm-hmm. it was telling me my median load time was like 3 seconds. What? Which I know, which that just and they said that's better than 51% of websites on the web. So I don't know how they're calculating that. That didn't seem right to me because even from a a cold empty browser there's no way it would take 3 seconds. So maybe it just does for Google because they're beating up your site so much. Yeah, I couldn't really figure that out. I messaged Matt Cutts and said, you know, these results look really odd to me. But it's a labs function, so it's new. I don't right. know. I mean, it might still be changing. But uh, I, I think that's a really interesting way to do it because it, I, it does match my mental model of how when I approach search result page, I really do want to see the faster stuff first. It does help me. In I terms think of if fine. you uh, – we, have we talked about the whole DNS making uh, – Google making their own DNS servers? Uh, we haven't, but we should. Yeah. Yeah, so Google is making DNS servers anybody can use. It's like uh, 8.8.8.8 and 8.8.4.4, which is some nice nice numbers, easy to remember. Yes. And uh, the first advantage over, well, I mean, the theory is supposed to be that they can make a faster DNS server than anybody else because they're going to work really hard on it. I don't well, know DNS lookup time is, is a factor. DNS lookup time is a factor. I think that what happens is that a lot of the ISVs out there in the world do a particularly poor job of... Um, uh, of DNS. They just sort of neglect their DNS servers. So the average home user on a cable modem or whatever might be using a like really particularly badly overloaded DNS server that's misconfigured and the DNS 1 is working and DNS 2 has been broken for six months and nobody ever noticed because there's two and uh, that kind of stuff. So that's, that's, that, I think that's one part of it. Well, you know what's ironic about this, though? So the, the other major player here is OpenDNS. OpenDNS, right, which I think but is a little bit But they're actually ad-subsidized, and yeah. one of the ways they make money is if you typo a fat finger URL, yeah. they, they sort of go to their results. own ad... Ad page. ...embellished yeah. version of, of the, of, oh, did you mean this? This is actually uh, a major problem. This, this breaks the Internet in a couple of, couple of ways. Um, because, I mean, the Internet spec says if a DNS, if there is no, if the DNS name is wrong, you know, the following things should happen. And what they do instead is they always give a reply to all DNS requests, which is just their own server. And one particular way, I'll give you just one example of the ways in which this, is, this breaks the Internet. Um, let's say that you have a server inside your office, and you can't get to it until you VPN into the office. So you use some kind of, like, VPN technology like PPTP or IPsec to connect to your office, and then you can get to that internal server. So now you're at home, you try to go to that server inside your office, but you've forgotten to VPN in. What you should get is DNS saying there is no such name, and you just get an error, and you're like, oh, I forgot to VPN in, and then you VPN in, and you try it again, and it works, and you're happy. What you get with OpenDNS is you try to go to it when you're not hooked up to the VPN. You get... uh, a, a bad DNS response, which is that open DNS server, and nothing on your system knows that, that you failed to get to this, except that when you try to go to that internal server in your office, you get a page of advertising brought to you by the fine folks at OpenDNS. And now you go and you connect to the VPN, 
and you try to go back to that server again, and you can't because your DNS has now been corrupted, polluted with this incorrect entry that OpenDNS gave you. Get it? I see. So I see. that's one of the one of the reasons what they're doing breaks the internet. This is one example. There are, there are many other examples of ways in which this breaks the internet in order to serve their advertising needs. So open DNS is I don't know if I want to say they're evil or anything. They're just it just seems like a little bit of a wretched business model, which is like oh we'll we'll, we'll break the internet in a slight way and we'll make a little bit of money off of all your typos. And so Google um, specifically is not doing that with their DNS servers. And that's a good reason to, to but switch. But that's totally ironic because they're totally an ad company, well, right? And the, yet they provide this service, which the main discriminating feature is that okay. it doesn't have ads. <laughs> so why is, I mean, that's just a good, that's just, it sounds ironic. Except the, so you, then you have to ask, why, why is Google going to do this? Well, to increase just internet usage, that's the big strategy. We've talked yeah, about this I don't think that's the reason. I think, I think here's what they're going to do. I think what they're going to do is they're going to put a feature in Chrome so that when you do a Google search on Chrome, you get back a bunch of search results, and then Chrome is going to go do DNS lookups on those addresses in the background while you're looking at your search results. So that when you go to click on something, it can then save the DNS search. Hmm. It can skip the DNS stage. See what I'm wouldn't saying? It, wouldn't that be like Microsoft using a secret API? No. So basically, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah. Yeah, it kind of is, actually. <laughs> the, the basic idea being that if you use Google as your search engine, probably only with Chrome. I don't know. Maybe they'll put this in Firefox. I mean, this requires some client work, right? But if you use Google as your search engine, then you won't have to do DNS lookups on anything that comes back in the search results because they'll, just, they'll, they'll hide that in the page somewhere. They'll just say, oh, by the way, and here's your DNS results. And it'll come with the page, with the search results. And they'll, they'll put that in your DNS cache on your client so that when you click on Google search results, you will get through to the web page faster because you won't have to wait for that additional DNS lookup. And given that DNS lookups in, in, in the real world to the average user on a crappy machine could be as long as half a second or a second, they can actually make a superior search experience, which is what they care about, by, by eliminating the DNS step. Well, the one thing I want to point out is we, we, you know, we on Stack Overflow went to a, a, a third-party hosted DNS service because we had... Right. Now, that's kind For of a different a, thing because that's like the authoritative that's name servers. Name servers, yeah. These are just like public servers that are mostly doing caching. But you were very down on the whole idea that us moving to this third-party could actually increase performance because these authoritative DNS servers were actually, you know, geolocated all over the world and like really fast and efficient, blah, blah, blah. And you were very skeptical that this would matter. So have you changed your opinion on this? Uh, I can't because remember uh, what my opinion was or whether I've changed it. But, but in, in that particular case, what I was skeptical about is it's not that hard to make a namedconf file and put it on a Unix server and throw it up on the public net. So it wasn't clear to me why... But you're going to throw it up on 10 servers all over the world? No, no, I mean, you're going to throw it up on one, but they cache it. It's not, it's not your fault. It's not your okay, responsibility caching. to cache it. That's what I want to get to, caching. So, okay, I mean, the way exactly DNS works is that go. everybody caches. And, yes. And you're, uh, you, you're, you're not expecting, you don't have to put it in 10 places in the world because as long, if you have two visitors from, you know, whatever country it is, their ISP is going to cache it for them. Right. So there's, let's think of all the places. When you go to, say, stackoverflow.com, where are all the places it's cached? Number one, it's cached on your own computer, right? Uh, I mean, it's cached, actually, the first place is cached in your browser. And it, the, the, different, the interesting thing about your browser caching DNS entries is that your browser never clears its cache, even if the DNS entry is dead which is annoying. So sometimes you're, you're, if you've changed your DNS, you have to close your browser and reopen it. But, but let's, let's take a step back. So there's many, many layers of caching at work here, which is right. why... And then there's your own computer. Really and then there's whatever you're using as your DNS service, which traditionally would be your own ISP. And then your ISP may in turn be getting it from some geolocated, some geo, geologically close. Like if you have an ISP in a funny country, then there may be some DNS servers that are sort of central for that country that they're all using. And uh, well, and your operating system before it even gets out of your PC. So the browser is caching. Your operating system is caching. Right. Your ISP is caching. Right. Things above your ISP are caching. Right. And, I mean, and only then is it actually hitting whatever whatever name server or DNS server that that you you're actually that you've actually put up on the internet. Right. So so I mean, assuming there's not infinite memory in the world, I mean, not every possible domain name can be cached by these systems, right? Uh, that's not that much. It's not that much. 
So you figure, I mean, I remember, I was actually reading through the, the Google public DNS. They have some really nice white papers on like how they do stuff. They have this really complex algorithm they use to figure out like, you know, what they should be caching. Like mm-hmm. they're going to eventually push stuff out of the cache. So yeah. they have this really complicated algorithm to figure out, you know, velocity and like, you know, which things are actually being accessed the most and over time. And yeah. it, it's really kind of cool. But like cache theory is, is really fascinating because that's what we're really getting into is, Yes, if everything was always cached all the time, then performance would be awesome, and this would all be kind of moot, right? Right. Like how fast you can do DNS lookups would be kind of irrelevant. Like the first one, the, the brand new DNS request for a brand new website that's never been on the internet before? Yeah. That would be kind of irrelevant. It would only happen once, and then it would be perfectly cached forever. So, mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'm saying server. is... <laughs> so that's the problem, is these cache things eventually get stale, they have, they have a certain time to live, and then they die. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is, Part of that can't be true. Like some of these requests have to be going to the authoritative server at some point. Sure. And there, there has to be value in the authoritative DNS server being really fast or being having a certain level of speed yeah, across yeah, the yeah, world. Yeah, 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 sure. Otherwise, it would be irrelevant. I mean, because the right. caching would be perfect. You, you know. So you're saying and, if you use one of these DNS providers that you pay, that they're likely to be running a faster server that's better connected than the server that you bought. That's right. It's 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 you know it's geolocated, it's distributed, all that stuff, and it's it's generally just fast and optimized. Yeah. Um, and also, the cache has to expire, right? Like, say the the IP address of your server changes. I mean, you can't cache that forever. Right. It right, can't right. be floating around in you know the matrix forever with that name. Yeah. So at some point, you you force it to expire. So you're, you again, you have to go back to the authoritative server. So it's a question of how often does that happen? It depends on how often you plan to change, you know, your IP addresses. So once the service becomes pretty stable, you're not changing the IP addresses very often, you can have that thing live for 24 hours. It's just interesting to me that Google thinks this is so important that they're willing to run like a public service for this for free. Um, I mean, it's so significant to performance for I mean, the average internet user. What, 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 you, 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 you said that they, I mean, they, they've done all these studies that show that people want you know, their pages to come up in less than a second or whatever. And if you look at the DNS time as a part of that in real life, like the average Joe Schmo going to a web page and how long does it take to appear and you actually measure out all the various things that are happening. They click the link, they wait, there's the web browser, there's JavaScript, we've optimized those, they have a pretty fast computer, they have pretty high internet speed. <coughs> Excuse me. What you're left with is DNS as, as one of the remaining things that's still taking up some clock time that could be sped up. Well, I, I just think it's more important than you made it out to be. Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of with Google on this one. I, I think that DNS speed, what I've learned is that DNS speed is actually kind of relevant. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely relevant. I just don't think it's that hard to put up your own server that's pretty fast. It does DNS pretty well. Yeah. Uh, it's. I mean, but sure, go ahead. Yeah, fine. Outsource it. Maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe it's worth outsourcing. So I got a question for you. Did you pick a, a listener question? We'd promised T-shirts. Uh, okay, wait. 42. We're going to have to pause for a second because I'm going to have to go find one. I have to deal with that when I deal with it. Okay, so stackoverflow.fogbugs.com. Uh, filters. We didn't get, I, we, I, I, you know, nobody listens to our podcast anymore. Because, <laughs> like, last week we said whatever the best question was is going to get a, uh, um, a t-shirt. t-shirt. And we got two questions. Two. That's well, it. Well, they have 50-50 chance of winning at that point. That's right. All right, well, I'm going to play them both. And... Um, uh, uh, you, uh, the listeners, use like mental telepathy. Just like think in your head who you want to win, which one you think is the better question. All right, here's the first one. Hi, Jeff and Joel. My name is Kelly French, and I've been listening to your podcast and enjoyed it a lot. And in the spirit of Stack Overflow, I want to offer an answer to one of your questions before I ask mine. Oh. When you ask why do you have to call Dell to get a better price, it's a matter of control. They want to make sure their competitors can't scrape their website and then offer a lower price and say they beat Dell's price. So my question is, if it's so well known that some programmers are 10 times better than other programmers, you know, why would don't employers offer 10 times more the salary? And let's say they did, what would be the effect if some programmers actually did earn 10 times what a uh, starting programmer, like an intern was 225000 and a rock star could earn 250000 just just as a, a regular job, not as a equity or own, start their own company. 
Thanks a lot, and I'll keep listening. Well, I, I like that one. I think that's a really interesting thought experiment. But let's listen to number two. All right. Uh, well, do we want to answer this one first? Mm, I thought we were going to listen to both questions. Now I want to hear the other question. All right. Well, let's play the other question here. It's a... Um, here we go. Uh-oh. Oh, come on, Audacity. Click, 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 click. The audacity of audacity. Sorry. This is a very quiet person. I'm, cra- I'm just crashing. Uh... <laughs> I just have to rename the file so that it doesn't, uh, so that I can open it. Hey, Jeff and Joel. What is your opinion about developers creating databases? I'm a programmer at a huge company where everyone has a narrowly defined role. A few days ago, a friend in another department said developers shouldn't make databases, meaning that it's something only a data architect has enough competence for. I'm no Sid Meier, but I've been programming since middle school. I have an MS in software engineering and a dozen years' experience. I think I'm qualified to create a database. It sure doesn't seem like rocket science. Is there something I'm missing? What do you guys think? Well, I like I like both of these questions. I think both of these these guys should get t-shirts. All right, actually. two t-shirts. So, Brad, uh, <laughs> let's see. I got I have Brad's uh, email address, so uh, I'll get in touch with you and uh, and get you a t-shirt. And uh, the other person what was his name Kelly. Uh, I don't have yours because you just called in. So uh, I'm sure once he hears the podcast, he'll once he hears the podcast, us. say could you send an email please to podcast.overload.com saying I'm the guy that called in and I'll get you a t-shirt. Um, so okay, so let's go with the first question, which was thought experiment. If, sure, thought if, experiment. If, if programmers really do vary ten times, uh, why don't they make a ten a factor of ten uh, salary? Um, well, uh, yeah. Uh, immediately, there's a problem because I can't think of any other job where that actually happens. I mean, unless you're the C, the only place you have these huge salary disparities in the real world is like CEO, right? CEOs make just stupid amounts of money. Yeah, but that's just uh, you know corruption is because we're corrupt. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I mean, we're, if you take corrupt. that one crazy example off the table, is there anywhere else that this actually happens? Uh, yes. Really? Sure. I mean, let's really do the thought experiment. So his sure. question okay. was. Shouldn't the, an, an entry level programmer make twenty five thousand? That's kind of low in the United States. Kind of low. <laughs> That's extraordinarily low. Yeah, but I bet you there's a place where you could find somebody who's an entry level programmer and doing very rudimentary kind of stuff at some very boring insurance type company in a very inexpensive part of the country to live in. You know, mm-hmm. like you know they're they're doing some kind of RPG two reports for the government in Alaska, and mm-hmm. they're making twenty five thousand. Okay. Or in the you know the military or something like that. Okay. So, so where's your example of where this actually happens? Where you have these massive And I'll bet you that there that that I'll bet you that uh that there is uh that I mean how much do you think Guido Van Rossum takes home a year from Google? Oh think gosh, he makes I have no idea. No, no idea. I think he probably makes and this is just my guess, but, but I But do you think he makes 10 times as much as sort of the average engineer at Google? Not the average, the low. The lowest. And, but Google, and Google doesn't Google have lowest. top engineers. I mean, have, right. No, the the twenty five thousand dollar guy in Anchorage and Guido Van Rossum is probably making two hundred fifty thousand, and there's a t- there's a ten to one uh, uh, order of magnitude. There. Oh, I see. Okay, so you're extending it outside one company. I was thinking within one company. Well, but... within one company, you don't really have. I mean, that's that's because Google is is pretty strict about who they hire. Right. And I don't think that companies are generally like if a company is even aware that there's such a gap between the good programmers and the bad programmers, they're not going to want any of the bad programmers around at all. You know, because the real problem is not that that twenty is not that that low end. I don't want to say twenty five thousand dollar programmer. I want to say the the least productive programmer. The problem is it's not that they're one tenth as productive as Guido. the The problem is that they're negative productive, like like massively negative productive. Okay, I think you've interpreted this in a in a strange way. I think you're correct in what you're saying, but I think it's still a strange interpretation because you're right. Guido Manrosson probably makes ten times as much as sort of grunt programmer in in a very rural area of the United States where it doesn't cost much to live. Right. But I, I think the, the spirit of the question was more like you're working at a company. Yeah. And in any given company, yeah. like the typical company, not necessarily Fog Creek or Google or even yeah. Microsoft, you have certain programmers that are much more efficient than other programmers. Right. So what would it be like if programmer A made three times as much as programmer B, but that programmer was also three times more efficient? I think the immediate problem is I think you'd have a riot. Like if this ever got out that there was this disparity in pay, yeah, 
Um, it would, would basically would, ruin a company. Right. Like but I don't think you could have a company. Like I that. think a lot of companies do that. A lot of companies just sort of secretly they give people big bonuses, and they're paying them under the table, and they're like, "Listen, I'm going to give you a little bit more, but don't tell anyone." And they probably pay, pay people. I mean, I think most most people feel like they should be paying their good programmers more than their mediocre programmers. But it's never like on the order of three times as much. I no, mean, you're right. what you see is the people much. who tend to excel make like I don't know, ten percent more, fifteen yeah. percent, maybe twenty percent more. I know it's a bargain. It's a bargain for that's that. The, those are the bargains. Those people are yeah. bargains to hire those people. But I think if you actually had a company where you had four to five times multipliers in salary, I think a word would get out, and b you would not have a company very much longer. Don't after forget that. that if you have a programmer where you have four to th- three to four times multipliers and productivity inside the same company, those highly productive people are going to be really disgruntled because they they know that they're carrying all the water, and they're, they're eventually they're going to leave. I think I think they're going to tend to migrate out to other companies where they're they're more appreciated and other people. You know where they're going to do startups, or I think that's what I'm eventually coming to. I think what you have is sort of this this equilibrium inside companies where all the good programmers tend to go to company A, mm-hmm. and all the not so productive programmers tend to go to company B, and, and it's you ha- you don't have that much variance around the norm, right? Because you can't. Because if somebody's really really good, you're right. Why would they hang around when everybody else is you know not as good as they are? If they're a huge outlier, or if you're really really bad, eventually you're going to get pushed out. Yeah. Um, and you're going to tend to reach an equilibrium. And I think that's just the natural state of the world. I don't think that what he's describing, this, this idea that you would actually pay people four to five times as much or ten times as much, is at all sustainable. I just don't think you could even do it. Right. I, I just – it wouldn't work. And, and don't forget also that the claim that, that, that the good programmers are ten times more productive than the bad programmers or whatever um, is not uh, – uh, it doesn't mean that there's sort of an equal distribu- distribution. It means that there exists some programmers who are just kind of amazingly productive. And those programmers, you know, may be the kind of people that write operating systems in their spare time, which become enormously successful on the third most popular operating system in the world. They may be the kind of people who write, you know, invent new languages and new compilers and start companies and, you know, invent new whole ways of programming web applications and Ruby and whatnot. I mean, those are those highly super productive uh, uh, programmers. The other thing about the productivity, which is kind of interesting, is that a lot of times I've seen the productivity, it comes from just, just doing something smarter. So you're not really working twice, as, you don't appear to be working twice as hard. You don't appear to be writing twice as many lines of code. You don't appear to be you know, generating twice as much code, but you figure out you know, enormous shortcuts that make things work. And so you are actually vastly more productive, but not because it looks like you're, you know, lifting twice as much weight as any, everybody else. And then uh, on the other side, the people who are unproductive are somehow, are sometimes unproductive in very disguised ways. Like it's not that they don't come into work, they still come into work. It's not like they're not checking things in, they're checking things in. It's just that, they, you know, they have a lot of bugs or it takes them a really long time to do something, uh, you know, but they still do it and they still appear to be working until 9 p.m. So they look kind of productive. So there's all kinds of ways in which uh, people, the people who are highly productive, may be highly productive in a disguised way. Mm-hmm. Just because, you know, I, I remember one case in which I got something done, you know, incredibly productively because I realized that there was this gigantic shortcut where we could reuse a whole bunch of existing code. And, you know, so it took me 10 lines of code to do what should have been, you know, what other people were doing with 100,000 where they were rewriting a whole bunch of code. And I was like, well, let's just use that old code. And so, you know, that's an example of being like unbelievably productive, but not in a way that anybody's going to give you any, you know, big bonus for. They're not going to say, oh, well, I'm going to pay you 100 times as much because you figured out a, you know, order of 100 shortcut. You're just like, oh, that's a clever shortcut. You're bright. They don't really right. see the productivity advantages of that, per se. So the summary is the world is just not fair in general. I mean, the, the mar- there's no way the market could... <laughs> I think eventually it does, though. I think eventually what happens is that the really bright people wind up at the really good companies that are really kind of successful. They make a bunch of money on the stock options, and they... And not always. I mean, there are probably a million cases in which somebody didn't get what they had coming to them. But, you know, a lot of times those really good and really productive programmers do wind up, uh, you know, getting paid for it and, and w- because they get the better jobs. Well, I think the difference is you have to be internally motivated to recognize that you you are good and that you should be paid what you're worth. And honestly, I'm not sure that most programmers are actually good at that. <laughs> yeah, you're just a like even the ones that are really good are kind of 
self-effacing. Yeah. They just they're not willing to to push in a way that they need to push to actually get what they're worth. Yeah. So I mean, something to really think about. Maybe that's the one thing to take away from this question is that, you know, if you really feel like you are good, legitimately good programmer, uh, and you're not getting what you're worth, I mean, you have to push to get what you what you want. I mean, it's nobody's going to hand it to you on a silver platter. You have to like start a company. That's the extreme. That's the Paul Graham route, right? You're awesome, so just start a company. Or B, you know, seek out other companies where there are really good programmers, and they tend to pay programmers a lot because they recognize the value of a good programmer. Right. And that's the only way that's really going to work out for you. It's Nobody's going to come up to you magically one day and say, you know what, you are really good. You deserve to make three times as much as these crappy programmers that you work with. That is never going to happen. Uh, so you got to get out there and push a little. Yep. So question number two. About question number creating- two. Yeah, can developers do databases? Asked Brad in Minneapolis. Um, uh, well, I, I, I have a weird opinion on this, which is that I mean, I think developers should wear many hats. I mean, I think you've got to be a generalist to be a good developer, but like not that. everybody agrees with that. And I think certainly at some organizations, they want to enforce these, you know, these walls <laughs> because you have these little fiefdoms of, we do data, you guys do programming. <laughs> yeah. And if you start doing data, then you're encroaching on our kingdom, and we can't have that. <laughs> yeah, that's really what uh, it is, actually. There's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Dumb companies? No, a lot of companies. Yeah, fiefdoms maybe. You know, there used to be. Uh, I, I, I once met a, pro, uh, a a database developer. I'm sure these, these exist all over the place, but I once met a, a database developer who actually had got an associate degree, an AA degree, a two year college degree, mm-hmm. in uh, database design or development. It's like being a database developer. And I kind of thought that was weird. I'm like, isn't there just, you make some tables and some columns and stuff like that? What, what exactly are these database developers? What, are they, what is he learning over there? And I guess they're learning how to normalize databases. And, um, so, I mean, there is, there is obviously a whole body of knowledge as to how to make a, develop, a, a database work, work really well. And, and, I mean, let's, let's take the uh, opposing position as well, which I've certainly seen developers make really bad data decisions because they didn't... They have know. a full understanding of yeah. what they were doing. And that stuff is hard. I mean, you know, Brent Ozar helped us with our database in so many ways. You know, taking really good developers, and they still don't know half of what a good database developer knows about how to make a database, you know, highly performant at least, uh, and highly efficient. So uh, I, I think that is true. I think that, like, the larger the organization, the more benefit they get from having specialists that really understand certain areas in depth. And having uh, generalists who just kind of know a bunch of things, that's... You know, that's useful for getting started, but at some point, um, there's, there's just too much to know. Like, if you, had, if you had to know, you know, everything there was to know about ASP.NET and everything there was to know about C Sharp and everything there was to know about your database engine, let's say it's SQL Server, um, that's sort of three really, really large domains, and it's possible that you could be, you know, good enough at all of them, but it's more likely that you're not. You just haven't had the time to really, you know become deeply knowledgeable about you know any one of those three areas well you know what wait wait i'm I'm kind of having flashbacks to your developers must know c argument yeah. i mean if developers don't know just the fundamentals of like databases and indexing and just database performance sure i mean they, this to me is your pointer that. argument uh, it's like you have to know this stuff mm-hmm. how i mean you're going to write code that just sucks if you don't understand this well stuff. you might have if a you database if you have a database developer you, if you have a database developer working with you who can do that stuff for you then you don't have to but it's just not the same as knowing it versus someone telling it to you. Yeah, you're right. I mean, at some point, you eventually learn it. I mean, how much... Yeah. You, unless you're a brand new developer who's never worked with the database, and like, how does that even happen? I mean, how do you even get there? I know right? I'm going to... And now I'm going to insult a bunch of people, which is what I always do in this podcast at about this point in time. But I'll, even though there's a strong argument to be made for the benefit of specialization and having some members of your team knowing the database really well, realistically, it is often the case that the database developers and the database administrators... Uh, I don't know why, but realistically, sometimes they don't even know as much about how to develop for a database as the programmers do. So in a lot of these organizations that are forcing this particular distinction, where they're like, no, no, don't work on that. We have a database developer for that part. And the database developer, frankly, is somebody that should have, you know, wasn't quite qualified to be a programmer. And so they're not even as good as, at the database development part as the programmer would have been, you know, the main developer would have been. 
I'm not I mean, saying that's me, always the case or that's necessarily the case. I'm just saying that I've seen, I've seen that way too many times where the database developers are often sort of failed generalist developers that just, you know, were moved into database development because it was easier or there was less stuff they had to figure out. I mean, to me, the worst thing you can do to a team is take away control of their destiny where you say, okay, you're creating a product. Mm-hmm you know, some software product that involves a database, and you're not going to have control of the database, which is a huge part of your application. So immediately, if I was working on the project, my, my you know, affinity, the, the amount I care about that project just went down dramatically. Yeah. Because you've taken away my control of my own destiny, which is I want to create something really good. And you have to believe that most of the people working really want to create things that they're proud of. They really do. I mean, why else would anyone have a job? What's the point of working? Yeah. They're creating things you're proud of. So they're going to do everything they can to make it a great product. They're, I mean, they're going to try to make it succeed. Uh, so uh, if you take away their what an control... Enlightened, what an enlightened and naive perspective. Think of all the people that are working <laughs> at crappy places that don't give a shit. They just want to go home at 5 o'clock. Nobody cares about what they're working on. They don't care what they're working on. They just want to go home. And now they've been told they could finish their whole damn project by Friday, but they've been told that they're not allowed to work on any of the database stuff because that has to be done by the database developer. And the database developer is saying, well, it's going to take me six months to do those 37 tables that you need. And you're like, I've already made the tables. They're already there. It's like, no, right. but you haven't done them as a database device, and this is unacceptable. This is uh, you're crossing lines of authority, blah, 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 blah. It's just like unions all over again, you know? Uh, I, I mean, just want to I, shout I just, at you because you turned on. A I've light had or this. Something. I mean, I've worked at large companies where I've had this experience, and we've never had a good interaction with the database group. Yeah, like they right. always sort of just interfered. It wasn't their yeah, baby. They don't care about it as much as you do because to them, it's just another database they have to set up. They don't yeah. really give a damn about it. You know, whereas to us, it's like a core part of our application. <laughs> we care, you know, <laughs> intimately you, about the time. I, I, a major investment bank, which is a large user of a product that is made that has a fog and bugs in the name, and uh, this major investment bank had called us up because they had fog bugs running and it was running fine and everything was just perfect and peachy, and they, they had decided for some reason to try to outsource things. They didn't want to outsource everything because you know they needed the in-house people because those people were smart. But they thought it might be a real good idea to outsource to some external company in India at least their databases. So they took a perfectly good working SQL Server database that was running fine and everything was happy, nothing was broken about it, and they were now trying to move this database to from a, from a server in New York where the bank was to a server in London where it would be managed by a group of so-called database administrators in India. So I was on the phone with our customer who was in London uh, or New York or something like that. And we were trying to get this thing to work, and he wasn't allowed to touch any of the buttons in SQL Server Administrator. And so he was calling this outsourcing company that was now responsible for SQL Server trying to get it to work. And, you know, we called up this guy in India who didn't know what he was doing. He had no idea how to operate SQL Server Enterprise Manager at all. He, didn't, he literally did not know at all. He knew how to do the most basic things, like restore and backup and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But he didn't know how to go into any of the dialog boxes and change any of the settings. This was all completely foreign to him. So at some point, we were like, could you please just give us access to the, to the you know, SQL server so we can just do this? Because we knew how to do it. I knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. Eventually, we wound up in this gigantic conference call where we're like literally providing tech support for the so-called outsourcing database company in India. And we're sitting there saying, okay, right-click on such and such, choose properties. What do you see there? No, read what's on the screen. No, just wow. read me the words that are on the screen. You know that kind of tech support call? This, and this is like is a nightmare scenario. This is the, just so painful to hear. Yes, this is supposed to be the expert. And so basically what happened is 24 hours of work from various high-paid people trying to get some checkbox checked in SQL Server Enterprise Manager by some person in India who, and presumably the whole value of this operation is to take a, I mean, the, the theory is supposed to be to outsource, you know, some simple part of your IT operation to some company that's going to do it. And what you've really done is you've just bungled everything and you've you just made it really difficult and you've just had a person who you're now paying to stand in between you and the dialog box that you need to get to, to, to make, you know, that, that change. It was, it was, um, uh, I, the, the whole thing was an, I, I, like, a, like a hysterical story, you know, like a, like a, uh, a it's comedy just depressing. It's not really funny to me. Right. And the funny thing is you just know that they never fixed this. Everybody probably knew that this was broken and a waste of time and a waste of money and just broken in a very particular way. And it didn't matter because this is just the way that large corporations, this is what they do. They're like, well, we've got to outsource something. Let's outsource the simplest thing. It's just outsource administration of SQL Server. Wow. 
<laughs> I mean, I, everything about this just contradicts everything I know about. And, I, and let me say something nice about developers because I've all, I, I've yeah. been criticized for stereotyping developers in certain ways on recent podcasts. <laughs> And I think those stereotypes are largely true, but one thing about, I mean, software developers are very good at being self-directed and actually sort of like you give them a mission and just get out of their way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, almost all the developers, with the exception of the really bad ones that are like the bottom of the barrel, like the bottom 10% that shouldn't really even be working as software developers, I think are very good at this. If you give them a mission and just sort of get out of their way and give them all the tools they need mm-hmm. and don't like inhibit them by saying, oh, you got to go through our database group, they actually will deliver. I mean, yeah. it's it's what they do. They really enjoy building, just whole scale building of stuff, and and sometimes they build too much stuff. That's actually the the failure condition is they'll build this grandiose castle that does way more than you want it to do. Ironically, mm-hmm. so you actually have to gate them the other way, which is like don't build too much. Uh, but in terms of just you know, like giving them a mission and just get out of the way is the best possible way to manage developers that that at least the ones that I've worked with, most of them, the good ones. You need the, those are the ones that are the get things done part of smart and gets things done. There, so so the more, the more you put in front of people, it's like, oh, you got to have the database guy, you got to have this guy. It's, like, yeah. it's just unnecessary. It's just, it's just blocking stuff that's going to just keep them from doing their best work. Yeah, those are just ways of basically breaking a, fu- a functional team, demoralizing people that were. Ah, it's so sad. It's just sad. It, it is a bummer. Can I mean, in the extreme a, case, let's get back to the question. I mean, if, if this is an ongoing thing where you can't meet someone enlightened that sort of sees that you know what you're doing and that you don't need to be sort of babysat and have a database guy sort of guiding you, yeah. uh, then you kind of are at the wrong place. Um, <laughs> you need to be looking uh, at alternatives. Maybe you should go to careers.stackoverflow.com. That's a good choice. Them. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, I want to do, uh, uh, um, do a Stack Overflow question. Okay, do it. Uh, it's question 186-7857. Say it again, 186 186 7857. And the question is, have you ever restricted yourself to using a subset of language features? Oh, I see. This is one of those controversial questions everybody closed. Well, I think they just wanted it to be community wiki because it was okay. kind of discussion-y. Okay, well, it's open now. Um, have you ever restricted yourself to using a subset of language features? And more importantly, why? Th- this is something that uh, um, uh, comes up... Uh, in certain languages, a lot. I've heard this most commonly in C++, where the language just has too much stuff. It's almost impossible to know it all. And some of the stuff is really dangerous, and you sort of force yourself. To, like, you can't start writing C++ code until you sit down and make a list of what language features you're going to be allowed to use and what language features you're going to ignore. Uh, I've also heard it in the context of JavaScript, um, because there's a, a fairly uh, good book about JavaScript uh, called JavaScript, The Good Bits. The Good Bits? Is that what it's called? JavaScript, yeah. The Good Parts. It's answer good number parts. two. Yeah. Um, why? Who's... Er, bad iPhone. What's going on over there? Anybody in the world has the ability to make my iPhone beep just by... <laughs> Uh, sending me an invite. Don't do this, listeners. Do not make my iPhone beep by sending me an invite. I will not appreciate it. Uh, did, we, we, did we run out of things to talk about here? Subset language features? Well, you, you didn't cover too much. I thought you might want to mention your favorite whipping boy. Well, my favorite whipping boy, C and C++. Although, I guess, I is there any C++. part of C that, that people recommend you not use? That's I mean, the, the a, nice thing about C is that it's a small enough language that you can use it all. Yeah. There's just not much. It's a very small core. There's right. nothing wrong. Right. There's not too much fundamentally wrong other than the fact that it's C. <laughs> other than the fact that it's C, you're not really going <laughs> to really hang yourself too much by, by using features. Some of the things you just had no choice. Uh, and they're dangerous, but you have to use them because it's the only way to do things in C. But C++ to me is the classic example of like, don't use X, don't use Y. <laughs> right, right. There were these There's all these books. things you can do in C++ that are just like frowned upon. Yeah, like, Scott Myers whole... wrote these long books about do not do any of this stuff in C++. He basically wound up taking away most of the language from you because the number of ways you could get, get yourself in trouble by using the language features was just sort of insane. Turns out, you, you really, after a while... And I'm gonna, I can already see the hate mail coming in, but after a while of using C++, you started to get the feeling that this was a language where every single feature turned out to have been a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, I'm still 
coughing a little bit uh, that they that they really probably shouldn't have done. Oh, and somebody brought up a good example in .NET, uh, and we I actually have used this, so I actually know about it. There's like .NET remoting. So there was two sort of okay. competing strategies for for communicating cross app, and one was sort of you know Wizdle, and this is before REST was really a thing. Yeah. But like XML based communication over port eighty, which is obviously the way you want to go, and there was .NET remoting, which is like a binary kind of format. Is that the like whatever their layer over RPC basically? Kind of, and yeah. in retrospect, and I actually have used this, and we actually I worked on a project where we did tons of .NET remoting, and uh, yeah, it did turn out to be kind of a mistake, like. It just was a bad direction to go in for the language and for just any project that picked it because it was kind of a dead end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's I think it's only belatedly supported now. Yeah, this this uh, it's it's almost worse than. Uh, I mean, a dead end is one particular reason. Another reason is that it, there are features that just sound like such a great idea at the time, and then you know, in the language, they they sneak into these languages. And the trouble is, the language has to support that feature until the end of time. I mean, they can try to deprecate it, but. Uh, um, uh, the the you're almost better off just design a new language that doesn't have that flaw and we'll use it for our next project rather than trying to make a new version of language that removes some features that somebody else might have already been using. Right. I mean, I know certainly I... But then there's the... the let's take a, the, the opposing argument, which is like link syntax. Mm-hmm. A lot of programmers really like link syntax to the fact... To, to the extent that they'll actually prefer it over... Old school, like you know, simpler but more verbose expressions of the same thing. Like right. say a loop, you could do in like a link query. Well, that might actually be an example of something I would, I would, I might want to discourage people from using. So, for example, I, I, I understand the value of link syntax, but I would also say if you're using link and there's another way to do things that's maybe a little bit more verbose, that you should maybe pick one and always use it if you can. You know what I mean? Like you can always make loops and stuff, right? Well, I was just trying to think of an example, but certainly Link gives you, and in Link's defense, it also gives you the ability to express things that are kind of a pain to do in loops, or it would take a lot more code. Right, right. But then you might say, well, uh, let's take let's take an example. That was one of the big innovations of Java, is that whenever there were three ways of doing something in previous languages, like even in C, there were three different places where you could store a variable. Right, you could store it on the heap, uh, you could store it on uh, on the stack, uh, or it could be or the two ways to store it on a stack, either as a local or as, or as like an argument. And um, so, uh, I guess there were globals. Um, I might be making so there's globals, there's the heap, and there's the stacks. There's three three places to store things. In, in C and in Java, there's only one place. Everything lives in the heap no matter what. It's, all, it's always on the heap no matter what. Um, and and uh, uh, this, this greatly simplified things, but it also made things more verbose. So you were constantly, like, to, to declare a new object, you were constantly having to say object X equals new object, where object is the type. And that could, have, could be a fairly verbose thing. And it, at some point, Java became kind of verbose, verbose and annoying and didn't give you that fine level of control that you used to have with C just because they were like, well, the, if a language is smaller, if it has fewer features, it will be more useful to people. There's less that they have to learn. There's less mistakes they can make. There's less probability that a new programmer will come in and get confused by something. There's less of these kind of bugs you used to make in C where you had something that's local and you tried to return it from your function and kind of worked for a while, but then... The next time you ran it on a different processor, it didn't work because you can't really return locals from a function. And so, so let's get some guidelines here. So one guideline would be, guideline. I mean, just KISS, right? Use the simplest thing that, that works. Yeah. And within that, there's obviously going to be some discussion on your team as to you know, which methods they prefer. There's like a thousand different ways to do things. So I, I think consult with your team. Yeah, and I have sort it, of a team-based discussion about it is like, valuable if there are two if there are two very 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 identical ways of doing something. There is a lot of value to just picking one and saying we're only going to do it this way, just so that nobody ever has to know how that other code works. You're never going to encounter it in code that you're debugging. You just don't have to learn about that ever. We just we're just not going to do it. It might be valuable, but there's this other thing that's just equally good. Yeah, or just have some guidelines about when you do it and when you don't do it, and. Some conventions, but I think I think beyond the the keep it simple, stupid of just the simplest thing that works, um, I think it's very much dependent on your team. And I think the only time you get into trouble is when you have matter and antimatter on the same team. Like, well, that's you know, what you get. The, the, some of these languages, one of the weaknesses that everybody always said of Perl and C plus plus is it's a very, they're very large languages, and different members of the team tend to end up using different subsets of the language. 
And so then they get into each other's code and they start seeing language constructs that they're not so familiar with. They don't use that often. And so it becomes harder for them to debug, harder for them to understand, and harder for them to deal with those other people's code. Right. I mean, that even happens to us on the, on the Stack Overflow code base, frankly. Really? Because I'm kind of a newbie when it comes to a lot of the advanced link stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I can do basic link, but when it comes to advanced link, I just I kind of get scared off. Yeah. So, I mean, good. I think it's just something you have to negotiate with your team and figure out, like, which part fits where. Right. And just don't have communication breakdowns. I, I think it's okay to have some flexibility, but you just, your team has to be able to work together. That's more, it's the human factor more than the language factor, in my opinion, here. Sure. Because there's no right answer as, like, what features should we use. So. It's, you know, there's something enormously fun that you can do that's a complete waste of time, which is before you start on a new project, get everyone together and write up some coding standards. Oh, no. I mean, no, you you're not going to tell people infinite, to do that, are you? You can, spend, you can spend an infinite amount of time on that, <laughs> and it's totally unproductive because oh, why does horrible. your company need to have different coding standards than anyone else? Why does every company and every project and every piece of code that's going to be written have coding standards? Because writing coding standards is much more fun than doing your actual work. This is meta. This is meta. This is full meta, right? This is yeah. my objection to meta. This is my whole thing. So I think what you should do is when you start having fights, <laughs> yeah. that's when you need to start having a little bit of meetings about, okay, let's just decide. And as a group, not you know one guy versus the other guy, uh, but as a group, like what should we do here? What's some general guidelines so we don't you know kill each other on the project? <laughs> but very much sort of an ad hoc as it comes up thing rather than wow that's the, you're right that's the best way to like cancel a project is to just come up with these grandiose standards up front as part of the plan that's just such a bad plan and then you can spend six months deciding what language to use mm. yeah get started and iterate rapidly <laughs> let's take, you take it back to the beginning of the podcast um, so I, let me do the uh, podcast sign out yeah do, do, do this for that would be awesome and I actually have it up on my screen for once, so you don't have to listen to me wait mm-hmm. for it. So if you, if you have a question for us, and remember there's free t-shirts involved now, so we're actually bribing people now. Well, wait a minute. I already gave away the free t-shirts. No, yeah, we're doing this every t-shirts? week, aren't we? Every week? Yeah. Every Man. week, free. Well, let's just do one t-shirt. We did two, two t-shirts this week. We'll only do one t-shirt It's got to be really good, though. Yeah, it has to be really good this time. Now, not to, I thought those questions were actually pretty good. They were good. They were both t-shirt worthy. Yes. So there's a number you can call at 646-826-3879 to submit questions to the podcast. You can also email mp3 or ogvorbis format files to podcast at stackoverflow.com. Please uh, say your name and limit it to about 90 seconds of talking, please. We also have a transcript wiki, uh, which will be linked from the show notes where people who can't listen to these podcasts can actually go online and um, see select parts transcribed that are interesting. Um, and then anything else, Joel? Did I miss anything? Um, no. Okay. I guess that's it then. See you next week. Yeah, see you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is... Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.